Good morning, Woodland. Hi, like Paige says, my name's Oshita Moore, and I get to serve as y'all's outreach and one of your teaching pastors here. And I am really looking forward to our time together this morning because we are gonna dive back into the Beatitudes. And can I be honest, that, has what, that is what this unexpected series has felt like for me. You know how when you're at the lake and you look at the water and it's so inviting and you just wanna jump right in, and then you jump in and the water is so cold, it's like such a shock to your system and you have to get acclimated to it. That's a little bit how Jesus' teachings and the Beatitudes feels to me. It's so inviting and I want to jump right into it, but it's such a shock to the way that I have been thinking about my discipleship, my spiritual formation, Jesus' lordship over my life, the way, a new way to be human in this world. And so I'm excited to dive in and let's just be shocked together, all right? So I've entitled our sermon today, Yard Signs and Yearnings. And hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll understand why I've entitled this, because we are going to be looking at the beatitude, blessed are the poor, are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. But before we do that, let's take a quick recap of where we have been um, through this, this series. What deep waters have we dove into and been shocked by? So first, Greg started us off by really helping us understand why we are looking to Jesus for our ethics. Like what makes Jesus the expert on living? What makes Jesus a credible teacher on the kingdom way? And so we looked at his blameless life and we looked at his authority, and we looked at his life and ministry and death as all evidences of his trustworthiness to teach us his ethics, a new way of living and being, and to trust the Holy Spirit as we apply those ethics to our lives. Then we dived into the Beatitudes, nine blessings, nine proclamations of a new way of being, nine proclamations of good news for those who are listening. And so we looked at, uh, we looked at blessed are the, we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. And we asked ourselves, what does that mean? And what does it look like to have um, a poverty of spirit and to recognize our need for God? And we realized that part of God's kingdom is this holding space for each other as we mourn, to recognize the brokenness in the world and mourn alongside it and to mourn with those who are suffering. We, we explored the concept of humility and meekness and then we went on to talk about the power of mercy over judgment and all of these things, all of these things have invited us to look at Jesus and look at his ministry and to shape our lives around those proclamations. These are the qualities of the kingdom of God that challenge us because each one of them asks us to disarm ourselves of some status of power or dominance in order to fully express the sacrificial love of God. And this love Jesus knew when he taught on that mountain to all the outcasts and all the neglected and all the questioners, he knew that this love, the sacrificial love of God is the texture of the kingdom of God. And that when we begin to live in these different ways, we get to, we get to express that love to those who are in, are in deep need of it. And when we do that, we get to be a breath of unexpected fresh air. So we acknowledge our need for God instead of performing. We make space to sit in grief and pain with others. We embrace humility. We look to God to satisfy our needs instead of the things of the world and we offer mercy when we could very well offer judgment. These beatitudes are an invitation to change the world around us through living the kingdom ethics of Jesus. 
So in keeping with that, with that posture of looking for the unexpected, preparing ourselves to be shocked, getting acclimated to a new way of living, we are going to look at our beatitude today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, I, I became a Christian around five years old. I asked Jesus into my heart as a five-year-old little girl. And so I've spent most of my life in the Western evangelical church context. So when I hear Jesus use the word purity and says that blessed are the pure of heart for they will see God, I immediately go to one specific uh, formative moment in my life. Um, and that is purity culture that happened when I was a teenage, when I was a teenager. Every youth pastor read the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And so we, and so, and so one of the things that I experienced, my very first experience of purity was this idea of, of certain rules and rituals and boundaries and structures in order to express to others that I have a pure heart because I do all of these things. But I want to propose to us that that is not what Jesus is asking us to look at when he is inviting us to explore purity of heart. And in doing so, I want to use an analogy that Dan, when he, when he taught in this sermon series, introduced to us. It's the two-ditch analogy. And I really love it because sometimes that's how it feels when we're reading the teachings of Jesus. We can get stuck into an either-or thinking, and we can often look for Jesus to affirm one side that we believe and condemn the other side that we disagree with. But what I loved about Dan's teaching about the two-ditch analogy is that we have to be careful to not fall into either one of those ditches, but to remain on the road with Jesus towards Christ-likeness. So blessed are the pure in heart uh, is one of these teachings that, that, that has the potential to fall into one of two ditches. I just mentioned the first ditch, this, uh, the, the idea of seeking our purity and, and validating our purity by all of the things that we do. Um, but purity of heart, the first ditch that I want us to kind of be aware of, that validating by things that we do, purity of heart is not defined by what Jesus, or what we do. And this isn't what Jesus is inviting us to look at. So like I said, I had a lot of my formative ideas around purity having to do with purity culture. And purity culture in and of itself, I understand the heart behind it. All of our leaders, all of our parents, all of our teachers wanted us to fall more in love with Jesus and shape our life around Jesus' teachings. And so they gave us sort of a playbook. Do this, don't do this. Do that, don't do that. Tell this person, stay away from that person. But what actually happened was those rules and strictures and regulations and, and, and it actually created an inroad, an in-path for uh, shame. So there's an article in Sojourner's Magazine called the G This Generation Was uh, Shared by, This Generation Shared Purity Culture, and this is what they, or This Generation Was Shamed by Purity Culture, and this is what they're building instead by Sandy Villarreal. So what Sandy says about the dangers of this first ditch, this identifying purity as only the things that we do and the ways that we live, she says it this way. She says, purity culture was bound by a strict set of rules reinforced by biblical messaging to dress modestly as to not be a stumbling block, to avoid one-on-one -on -one interactions with someone of the opposite sex, to keep your thoughts pure because you can be unfaithful in your mind. The methodology to achieve this centered on outward displays of commitment, like purity rings or true love weight pledges, which carried with it a threat of shame if broken. 
But because of the strict guidelines, activities like kissing or lustful thoughts or even being victim of abuse or harassment often resulted in some shame, internalized and rarely if ever examined. Jesus warns us actually of this first stitch of identifying our purity only by the things that we do in Matthew 6, 1, when he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. Theologian Scott McKnight says of the pure of heart that they are aware of this ditch and they seek to avoid it. And he says it this way, the pure in heart know the temptation of externalism and social honor that comes with being pure in hands or observance or in reputation. So if Jesus is not saying that our purity is solely defined by this ditch, and, that, and there's almost a freedom of the shame and the overwhelm of the perfectionism over, uh, of this. What's this other ditch? What is the second ditch that we need to be careful of? Well, when you kind of leave this side, you can swing over here to purity of heart is defined by my good intentions and my inner faithfulness. So this is I, well, I, I don't, I, I, I spend time with God and I pray and I know my heart and God knows my heart and only God can judge me. And so it doesn't matter what I do and I'm not going, I'm, I'm not going to actively seek these external ex, extern, expressions of faithfulness. I'm just going to, to do my own contemplative, quiet practices of faithfulness and know that that's enough for God. Even I, after being a Christian for so long and being in ministry, I have to be super careful of this ditch because I so like want to run away from the shame of this ditch that I run over here. For instance, just this week, my husband works with at-risk youth and, um, and one of his youth is addicted to drugs and he is in an unstable home environment and my husband just has a special tenderness for this guy. And so uh, this guy calls my husband at 11 o'clock at night on like a Thursday night and, he, and we were sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden I see my husband's work phone goes off and I'm like, uh, he's calling you. And, and usually my husband doesn't pick up, but because we know what's going on with this kid, he picked up. And, and of course this kid was having a really hard time. Um, he had OD'd a week before and so uh, he was still kind of coming off of the trauma of that. And so he, he starts asking my husband, can you come? Can you come get me? I can't stay where I am right now. Things are really bad. Can you come pick me up and take me someplace safe? And so the organization that my husband works with, they have connections, and so we, we could find a place for him for the night. And so my husband starts calling all these people, and he starts getting dressed and ready to go, and I turn to him and I say, why don't we just call an Uber for him? Have somebody come pick him up and deal with him and drop him off at the shelter that he needs to go to, and we'll just sit here and pray for him. And then tomorrow morning, after we've gotten through our night, then you can go and you can check in on him. You see, I, I, I didn't want to engage in that work. I didn't want to care for that person. And I just wanted to say, it's just enough for us to stay here and pray for him and wish him well. And then later on, when it makes more sense, when it's more comfortable for us, that is when we will step in. This ditch that Jesus is, this other ditch that, that is not the purity of heart that Jesus is teaching about is highlighted in James. James 2, 14 through 17 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith live in them? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, it is dead. And so the two ditches that we're kind of sitting in is this action of purity and this faithfulness, this inner faithfulness of purity and the road that that is completely made up of a different substance is carrying both of these and moving forward to Christ's likeness. And it makes total sense why many of us fall into these ditches, but neither one truly forms us, like I said, into this kingdom ethic. It doesn't challenge us. It's not a shock enough to our system. So then what is purity of heart? Purity of heart, the kind of purity that Jesus is inviting his disciples into, the kind of purity that is good news for every single listener, the kind of purity that changes the world and catches the attention of those in need, the kind of purity that draws us closer to God and closer to each other is a single-mindedness on God. Purity of heart is a single-mindedness of God on God and God's love that then informs our motives, our actions, our words, and our deeds. And in doing so, we will see God at work in our lives on a more regular basis. You see, if I'm over here in this ditch and I'm working, working, working for my purity, you know what I'm looking at? My works and my shame. And if I'm over here just being faithful in my, in my inner faithfulness and I'm, I'm, I'm without actions, you know what I'm looking at? My comfort. But if I'm here, I'm looking at the God who challenges me to marry my faithfulness and commitment to him and my, and my, uh, and my, and my external actions that, that bless and care for myself in the world. He's asking me to live into both of those realities. This blessing of single-mindedness on God is reaffirmed to us in Psalm 24, three through four. So the psalmist asks the question, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart that does not trust in the idol or swear by a false God. The listeners on the mount would have made that connection when Jesus says, blessed are the pure pure in heart for they will see God. And that would have been such good news for them. Remember that Jesus had gathered all of the outcasts, all the weary, all the neglected, all, and all of those who have been put upon by the empire, by, their, by, by the political systems of that world, he gathered all of them to be their teacher in this new way of being. Imagine being a person for whom the current political leaders seem not to care about your safety and your sanity. Imagine living in a society that that says, because you've contracted this illness, you are no longer welcomed at tables or businesses. You must linger and languish at the city gates, distanced from any life-giving relationship. Imagine being someone striving to earn their keep but never having enough or being robbed of your hard-earned money by corruption and economic downfall. 
This was the experience of many of those people at the Mount. And so when Jesus is offering that blessing of purity of heart that, that will allow them to see God, it was not meant for them to try harder or do better or prove your worth. Because for many of them, the world was a dumpster fire and everything that they loved, everything they've done, everything that they knew to be true was burning down on a daily basis. But Jesus is offering a refreshing new way of being, good news, a new hope a different view of purity that solely relies on this internal connection and focus to, to God and renewal in the love of God so that you can enter into the world a renewed, transformed person. James 4.8 invites us to this picture of purity. When, when, uh, when we're taught to come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are not minded about, we're not keeping our mind on this ditch, and we're not keeping our mind on this ditch. We're keeping our mind on Jesus. We are solely focused on Jesus and that, and that sacrificial love that transforms our hearts. So, while it makes super sense for us in this Western context to want to fall into either one of these ditches, we have to, we have to be careful because when we hear the word purity and, and because we've either been taught that purity is our actions or our inner faithfulness, it's, and now we're asking to look at it this different way, we have to know that the core of that, dis, that, that discomfort that says, oh, I don't know if I can think of purity this way, is that for many of us, we have interchanged the words purity and holiness and righteousness with each other, and we have put them under a, a, an umbrella that says these are transactional words. And so oftentimes we think of holiness as defined by our actions or lack thereof. We do this and then we are called holy. We don't do this and then we are called holy. There's a transaction there. We think of righteousness as expressed by certain practices and rituals. I am righteous in God's sight because I pray this way or I go to this church or I hold this theology. And if I do these things, God considers me righteous. There's a transaction there. Or purity is confirmed by this test or by the lack of this action or my me following this ritual. And then if I do these things, then I'm pure. However, these words are not transactional words. These are covenantal words, which makes sense. If we think of these words as covenantal words, then it makes sense to reframe the way that we think of purity as a single-minded focused on God. See, holiness is not the action or lack thereof. Holiness is the idea of being set apart for a particular purpose within a particular relationship. There's covenant there. There's commitment there. Righteousness is seeking being right related with God and others. There's covenant there. There's relationship there. And purity in this passage is not a blot test of our souls to see if there's any residue of the world that makes us too unclean for God. No, purity in this passage is that we reject our re defining our relationship and discipleship of Jesus by these external factors so that we can cultivate an authentic and vibrant love relationship with God so that we can enter into the world and be more loving. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God as Jesus' invitation to check our motives and the desires of our hearts. Pure hearts desire God, and therefore it's easy to see God at work in and through our lives.
When our motives are anything else, then it makes so much sense that we can feel conflicted or discouraged, distracted, and shamed. And then we just say, I guess purity of heart's not the beatitude for me. I'm really hungry all the time, so let me just hunger and thirst for that righteousness. When I think about reframing the way that I think of purity, I'm often reminded of a conversation that I had with my godfather when I was was on my way to college. So my godfather is one of the most uh, financially savvy men I've ever met. He uh, invested so well as a a young 20-something, 30-something man uh, that he was able to retire early. Uh, He gives generously. One of the things that he did for me and my husband when we got married was he paid off a big chunk of my student loan debt so that we wouldn't enter into our marriage in debt. This man cares about loving the body of Christ through financial teaching. And so he sat down with me and he, and we were talking about, you know, decisions that I needed to make so that I could enter into college with being financially secure and having a mind for how I'm going to manage my money as a college student. And so I said to him, okay, great. Like we talked about all these things like saving and we talked about living frugally and all these things. And I said, okay, great. So how do I sign up for my first credit card? And he was like, really? Like after all that, you want, you want to get a credit card? And, and I was like, yes, yeah, here, here's the thing. Uh, I want to travel. And what you need to know about 17-year-old Oshida was that I had just been like watching a lot of TV and I was ready to get out of my little like suburban Texas town. And and one commercial that just kept popping up uh, that summer was this MasterCard commercial where the card holder, they were trying to advertise that this card can be used anywhere in the world. But that's not what I got from this card, from this commercial. I got that this card was like his ticket to the world, that he could go here and he could go there and he can go and he can go to Japan and he can eat a big plate of pasta in Italy. And, and, and I was like, oh, if I want to do any kind of traveling, like I need to have a credit card. And so I start to explain this to my godfather and he starts nodding and he, and he, and he says, okay, Oshita, what's actually going on in you is you want to travel. Like that's the desire of your heart is you want to see the world. And that's going to cost money, but you don't have to have a credit card in order to travel. What you should do is you should focus every day on that end goal of traveling someplace, pick one place and start to save your money and start to dream about going to that place, start to live a little bit more frugally and then go to that place and explore that place and then come back and start it over again. He's like, you don't need the weight of a credit card debt in order to explore and see the world. And so in a lot of ways, this is how we often think of purity of heart. It's, oh, I've got to do this thing, or I've got to pray this way, or I've got to show this, have this action. And if I do all these things, and that means I'm pure in heart. But what, what Jesus is asking us to do is think of purity of heart as this taking stock, being self-aware, looking in and saying, what is it that I truly want? And then moving towards that. And we are reminded in Matthew 6, that if we seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, all these things will be added to us. We'll begin to have Christ-like actions. We'll begin to pray more regularly and give more consistently and, be, and love more authentically because we're focused on Jesus. And we'll, be, and we'll be able to feel more connected with God and we'll, be, and we'll have that inner peace. We'll be cultivating that inner connection to the Lord if we are living over here. We will will begin to be building faithfulness if we're focused on Jesus. This shines a whole new light on when I asked Jesus into my heart as a five-year-old little girl. 
See, I wasn't just simply asking for forgiveness of my sins or accepting an invitation to be a part of the church with all these kind, loving people who loved Jesus and had really great Kool-Aid. I was surrendering my heart, my motives, my core identity, my actions to Jesus Christ as my Lord. I was looking to Jesus and saying, you get to tell me. You get to show me the way that I should live. You get to check my motives. You get to define my core identity. And I will shape my life around you because you are my Lord. This is what Jesus was rekindling in his followers on that mount, a renewed resolve to devote their hearts to him as their Lord and their Savior. And isn't this what, we, isn't this what Jesus le- later teaches on when he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Blessed are the pure heart uh, for us is, is such good news because we will see God And it's a beautiful reframing of our lives as Christians to allow Jesus into our interior lives so that we can become external witnesses for him. You know, oftentimes I talk to Christians and they worry that they're not good enough, that they're not reading their Bibles enough or they don't know enough scripture, that they feel too distracted and 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 they feel less than. I've talked to Christians who have really repent it to me to say like, hey, I meant to fast over Lent, but then I got sick, or I really wanted to give more, but then I lost my job. And they ask the question, is God mad at me? Do I have to make it up to God? And what Jesus is asking us is to let go of those shoulds because we're focused too much on the output and not the input, the input of Christ's influence, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, so then what do we do with this invitation? Scripture reminds us that our hearts are so important and that we should guard it and we should be mindful of what's going on in our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it is the wellspring of life. Okay, so we want pure hearts and we want to guard our hearts. We want to be mindful of being single focused on Jesus. So what is it that we need to look for to examine our hearts and to, and to, know, and, and, and to know kind of our motives and to kind of understand some distinct, distinguishing aspects of a pure heart? Well, the first is a pure heart is an undivided heart. A pure heart is an undivided heart. So when my husband and I took our kids on vacation a couple of weeks ago, we took them up north to a cabin, and um, we drove in separate cars because just five people go in a cabin, there's so much stuff. And halfway up on the trip, I realized that we, we needed a few things from the store for that evening that we left at the house. And so I text my son, who's in the passenger seat, and I tell them, hey, I'm going to stop at the store, and then I'm going to jump back. I'm going to use Google Maps and jump back on, and I'll catch up with you at the cabin. I'll be about 30 minutes behind you. And so I go to the store, and then I, I get back on, and apparently Google Maps took me in a different direction than my family because uh, I ended up in, like, taking this little back way through a suburban neighborhood, and, and I'm driving through this neighborhood, and I, and I look over, and there's this house with, y'all, I'm not kidding you, about 15 yard signs. Like, there was, there was a yard sign for every school that every one of those kids went to. There was a yard sign for every, uh, for every uh, official running for office. There was a yard sign about their yard worker. I guess he does a really great job at positioning those yard signs. There was a yard sign for the pizza delivery. And then there was a yard sign, a for sale sign. And I was like, that's a lot of signs. 
And so I thought, had this thought to myself because I kind of knew that I was working on this sermon that if I were to walk up to their house and knock on their door and say, which of these yard signs most reflects your heart? Like, what is the thing that you think about every single day? Which of these yard signs would it be? Because looking in, I feel like their heart, their, their, their attention and their passions were really divided. Pizza to a city official, what? And I'm pretty sure if I were to knock on their door, they'd say we're focused on that for a sale sign because I have heard that it's really hard to sell a house in this economy right now. But, uh, but our hearts can be like that front yard. It can be divided. We can have yard signs set up for this thing we're passionate about and this thing that we're focused on and this thing that we want to achieve. And so a pure heart is a heart that is not divided between all these different, different things, these, these as we've read in scripture, maybe little idols. A pure heart is an undivided heart, one that doesn't rely, one, on the yard signs to, uh, to, to promote and to project all the things that we're passionate about, and one that doesn't divide our attention. An undivided heart is solely focused on God and God's presence in our lives. And this is why the pure hearts see God more clearly because the yard, the yard of their hearts are not littered and overwhelmed with bunches of yard signs. They are focused on their daily yearning for the Lord. They have one seal on their heart and that is a child of God as stamped by the Holy Spirit. Matthew Bates in his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone says, human salvation is directed towards God and God's intention to restore individuals, communities, and the world as the kingdom of God continues to break into history. When we give allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become new creatures set free from the enslaving power of sin, as we are transformed by the image of Jesus the Christ, and we bring wise service, stewardship, and rule to one another and to the remainder of creation. But having a pure heart in this moment for us is a prophetic word, because we are entering into an election season. And right now we are all talking about how polarized our country is. We're going into this election season, um, and in the air, it is moving us to pick a side and defend it at all costs. But this is destructive to the purity of our hearts because it introduces a relational kind of violence towards the people that God loves. So if we're looking at God and we care about the things that God cares about, then we wanna care about loving, loving people even if they have uh, different views than us even if their way of living and their way of believing maybe feels offensive to us. And so I want to read this poem from, from Pastor Brian Zahn, which is a word to us about how the Beatitudes can help us reframe the way we enter into this election season, specifically if we're looking solely to God. But Pastor Zahn says, the spirit of the age blesses the cocky and self-confident, but Jesus blesses the poor in spirit. The spirit of the age blesses those who are shallow and thus happy all the time, but Jesus blesses those who have the capacity to mourn deeply. The spirit of the age blesses the power hungry who want to run the world, but Jesus blesses the meek who are willing to trust God. The spirit of the age blesses the privileged protectors, but Jesus blesses the justice seekers. The spirit of the age blesses those who think justice is retributive, Retributive, just, retributive <laughs> and vengeful, but Jesus blesses the merciful instead. The spirit of the age blesses the clever ones who come up with the best schemes. Jesus blesses the pure of heart who have no schemes. 
The spirit of the age blesses those who are great at waging war, and Jesus blesses those who have the patience to work for peace. And the spirit of the age blesses those who fight for might, and Jesus blesses those who suffer for what is right. So let us be aware of our hearts and how they're prone to be divided, and take heart in Hebrews 12:1 that says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and, and sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, so the next distinguishing factor of a, pure, of a pure heart is an undeterred heart. So this purification process of our hearts is not a one and done thing. Just because I, I invited Jesus into my heart as a five-year-old doesn't mean that now in my late 30s, I don't have to continue asking Jesus into my heart and to purify our hearts. And what usually happens when we do that on a regular basis is that the light of Jesus, the love of Jesus exposes what's going on in our hearts. It exposes mixed motives and it bumps against, some, it bumps against the, our comfort. This purity of heart will, will, have some, will experience some opposition when we choose to follow Jesus in this way, both internally, that exposure, and then externally. So when we ask the Lord to create in us a clean heart, to, be, to help us to be clear of our motives, even as Jesus' followers, we are inviting Jesus into that regular daily basis. And we are saying that even when that happens, even when we are exposed, we're not gonna back off and say it hurts too much, it's too uncomfortable. You know what, I'll just pick a ditch and stay there. This work that, ex, that, ex, that of single-mindedness says, I'm going to do it even when I feel uncomfortable. And this, this is encouragement that we get from Deuteronomy 28:14, when we are told not to turn to the right or to the left um, and to hold close to the commands that the Lord has given to us and to not go after other gods and serve them. A pure heart is an undeterred heart that says, I am going to be in this work every single day day. And I am going to acknowledge that maybe I have some mixed motives and maybe there is some sin in my life, but that's not going to scare me away. I'm going to stay in that exposure. I'm going to let that light purify me. One of my favorite quotes from a civil rights activist who had such an undeterred heart that he actually gave up his own life uh, for the sake of racial justice in our country was Jonathan Daniels. And Jonathan Daniels has a really interesting story, and I, want, I would encourage you to go learn a little bit more about how he actually gave his life up. But I always look at what he did, how he took a bullet for another woman, um, for a black woman. I look at that and say, what it could be going on in that person's life that would allow them to make such a sacrifice, to have such commitment? And this is what he says about how his heart has been shaped and formed by Jesus. He says, that when he started to do this work, he lost fear in the black belt, which is what they called that, that area. When I began to know that my, in my bones and in my sinews, that I had been truly be baptized unto the Lord's death and resurrection. And that in the only sense that really matters, I'm already dead and my life is hid with Christ and God. And then I began to lose self-righteousness when I discovered the extent to which my behavior was motivated by worldly desires and the self-seeking messianism of the Yankee deliverance. The point is simply, of course, that one's motives are usually mixed and one had better know it. 
An undeterred heart is a heart that says, I am human and I live in this broken world and yet I'm trying to live. I'm trying to solely focus on Jesus. And so even when it's hard, I'm going to stay in it. I'm going to acknowledge the fear that comes up and I'm going to reject the self-righteousness and I'm going to know that maybe I have mixed motives and that's okay, that the spirit of the Lord is, is constantly working in me to purify those motives. It's an ongoing commitment. And so how do we live into this ongoing commitment? How do we, how do we, what, what practices can form us so that we are no longer distracted and no longer divided and no longer deterred? Well, a pure heart is an undistracted heart. A pure heart is a heart that says, I'm not going to allow all of these things, these external influences to keep me from staying on this road. I'm going to cultivate practices that actually allow me to, to tune them out for some portion of my time, some portion of my day, so I can be reaffirmed in my core identity, so my motives can be examined, and so that my deeds and words and actions look like Christ. And the first thing I want to say is that I read an article that says 65% of people have reported that they are more distracted than ever in this current age. And so distraction is a part of our life, and it's okay. This is what we are going through. Um, Thomas Merton is one of the founding fathers of the contemplative movement, and he, and he talks about distractions in this way. He says, no matter how distracted you may be, pray by peaceful, even perhaps inarticulate ways. Um, but stick to an effort to center your heart upon God, who is present to you in spite of all that may be going on through your mind. And so an undistracted heart is not a heart that says, oh, I, I, am, I am ignorant of all the distractions and I actually hate all the distractions and I'm going to feel shame because I live in a distracted age. An undistracted heart says, I live in this world of noise, but I'm going to create quiet in these small spaces in my life. This is called, this, this, uh, this resolve, um, some psychologists call practicing attention management being aware of what you're paying attention to, managing it and saying, I'm going to control where my attention goes. And for the pure of heart, we say, I'm going to control in this space and time where my attention goes, and I want it to go towards Jesus. So I'm going to introduce us to a practice as we close called the Daily Examine. Um, the daily examine is one of my favorite ways to quiet out the world. It's a century-old practice that invites us to prayerfully reflect on a passage of time. Some believers do it at their midday, some do it at the end of the day. I find myself doing it before I have a hard conversation or after a big argument. The examine allows us to embody Psalm 139, 1 through 3, that says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted in all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? The daily examine allows us to cultivate an undistracted heart because we choose undistracted moments. We remove those distractions around us that cloud both our picture of God and our motives. So we are actually going to take some time um, to reflect. Um, I'm going to teach you the steps of the examine, and I want to encourage you to write them down. And then I want to give you a little bit of beatitude homework. Practice the examine in this upcoming week. So the steps of the examine are to review your knowledge of God, to recognize where God has been present for you, reflect on any feelings that emerge, 
Repent for moments you've missed God's invitation to serve, to love, to give hope, or to give. And recommit to walk in greater knowledge of God and self. And so what we're going to do now is um, our music team is going to lead us um, in a response song. And it's one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount. I love it because it was written by this 22-year-old pastor in 1758 about the beauty of God's grace and his ever closeness to us. It's inspired by 1 Samuel 12 when the prophet Samuel, after defeating the Philistines, didn't get distracted by all the post-war, the post-conquering deeds and necessities, but he stopped and he built an altar and he said, thus far the Lord has helped us. Kingdom people, when we seek to have pure hearts, hearts that are undistracted, we cultivate practices that require us to stop and reflect and say, thus far the Lord has helped us. So we're going to live into this beatitude. Um, um, and as I walk, and like I said, as I've walked you through the steps of the exam, and I want to encourage you to do that in the upcoming week, but really take in the lyrics of this song and allow it to purify your hearts.
focus on this ditch where you're trying to validate your discipleship in Jesus by the things that you do you don't have to stay there you don't have to deal with that shame and are you over here in this ditch and you're only cultivating inner faithfulness but you're never never engaging with others and you're holding back and you're leaning into your comfort you don't have to stay there either you can get on the road with all of us We're living in this messy space where we are examining our motives before the Lord and we are cultivating undivided, undeterred, undistracted hearts, pure hearts for Jesus. And so as I close our time today, I just just want to encourage you that, that it's going to be all right. And that wherever you are, you are so deeply, deeply loved by Jesus. And that this call to purity of heart isn't something that you have to try harder into. It's already there for you. The love of Jesus is right there for you. And, it, and the Lord wants to enter into that space and to transform and make you whole. And so don't try to work your way into purity of heart. Just open your hands and receive it. It is good news for many of us. So as I close us, I want to read to you this prayer for hopefulness, that we have hope as we continue to deal with the shock to our systems that the Beatitudes brings us, that we have hope in the midst of this world that feels really unstable and scary for us, and that we have hope that is rooted in God. So receive this prayer. Oh God, this is a hard time, a season of confusion, a frantic rush to fill my closets, my schedule, and my mind, only to find myself empty. Give me hope, Lord, and remind me of your steady power and your gracious purposes, that I may live fully. Renew my faith that the earth is not destined for dust and darkness, but for frolicking life and deep joy that being set free from my anxiety for the future. And Lord, help me take risks for love today. Amen. All right, well, a couple of announcements before, we, before I send you to go in peace. Um, the first thing that I want to remind you of is that we have an opportunity to gather together and to discuss the message with each other. You know, one of the most important parts of cultivating a pure heart is to cultivate it within community. Um, and so we want to encourage you to join us in our gathering groups. The other option for you to kind of dive a little bit deeper into our conversation today is to join me and Shauna and Dan on the MuseCast, and that's on Tuesday afternoons. And then the other thing that I want to remind us is that Anytime the Lord exposes something that's going on in our hearts, anytime the Spirit challenges us, um, there's big feelings and big questions and big thoughts. Or maybe you came to the space and you've had something that's weighing you down from fully entering into that love, that transformational love of Jesus. We want to remind you that there is prayer available for you through Zoom after the service. And so please, we have prayer warriors ready to walk alongside you on this road. So go in peace, my friends, to love and serve the Lord and to cultivate pure hearts. Amen.